0: Today's scripture from the book of Mark, chapter 11, 27 through chapter 12, verse 12. Mark 11, 27, 12 through 12. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was a baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say, from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? What shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him, and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed." and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This for the Lord's doing and is marvelous in in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Jim. Well, good morning, everyone, again, and welcome back again. to It is second Sunday of 2019. We're at Bethany Church. We block off the main section of our worship gathering, our Sunday gathering for the preaching of God's Word. This is not because I feel as pastor I should have the most airtime. Hopefully it's not for my ego, but because we believe, really, that this is a book from God. This is a book from God. You can't see him, you can't touch him. You probably aren't having audible conversations with him. But what you hold in your lap, or on your device, probably more likely on your phone, is from him. Think about that. This is from him. It's your connection to the unseen, to the spiritual realm, the spiritual word uh, world, to God. It's our connection. Unseen spiritual truths, the key to our growth. That's why we give the main portion of our gathering to the opening, the reading, explaining, and applying of God's Word. If you were here last Sunday, if you missed the message, I encourage you to go back to hear it. We brought about three uh, key words from that message, from that passage, that are some theme words for 2019. Word, prayer, and gospel. And word is right up top there as one of our priorities and our key to spiritual growth. It's how we grow through God's Word. So encourage if you missed that last week, go back online or find our podcast on iTunes and uh, maybe we'll we'll put some CDs out next week of that one as just a message to really start our year and highlight these three uh, themes for a fruitful 2019. And David and I pray every Sunday morning before you guys get here that all of us would come expectantly to hear the word of God. It's what we do in that little room over there at 945 before the service starts. So let's do that. Would you pray with me for a moment? Lord God, illuminate your word today. By it we grow. Through it we grow as the Spirit takes it and applies it. Encourage us today. Convict us today. Challenge us today. Produce fruit in us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Fear keeps us from doing many things, doesn't it? Think about your life for a minute and decisions and things and situations you've been in. Fear keeps us from doing many things. How many can look back on seasons of life and remember a moment where you didn't act, or you didn't make a decision, or you didn't risk something valuable because of fear? Fear that you felt internally, maybe? Fear that you shared with somebody? Fear of failure? Fear of someone's opinion of us? Fear of losing control? Fear of losing autonomy? a fear of losing reputation, fear of messing up a good thing. Fear drives us sometimes way too much. A lot of times fear comes in the middle of conflicts or big decisions in life. Like we'll see today a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Actually, the the next few Sundays, we're in the middle of these five conflicts that Jesus has in the temple. Jesus walks right into conflict again we'll see today with these ruling leaders of the day on what they perceive as their turf the temple it's their turf and through their conflict we will see as they were driven by fear when we are driven by fear we struggle not only to accept Jesus's ultimate authority but we also resist his rightful claims on our everyday lives. And a lot of times that's driven by fear. We're going to look at three clarifying truths today about God's authority and our resistance to it, sometimes based on fear. So let's jump in. Let's look at that first truth today. Hopefully, hope you got your outline there and your scripture open. Our first truth is this. Jesus' authority has always been challenged. Jesus' authority has always been challenged. Last week, if you remember, we covered the clearing of the temple a pretty dramatic passage where Jesus overturns tables and, and, and chastises them for what was going on in the temple, the money changers and those selling livestock for marked up prices to cheat the people just so they could sacrifice to God. They turned God's temple into a, a crooked marketplace we talked about last week. But also he did it so that if they would see that his overturning of the tables an overturning of the whole sacrificial system was, uh, of animal sacrifices because he was going to become the ultimate sacrifice for them, for their sin. The one who was purifying the temple would be the one who would, would purify them on the cross. That's what he was doing. And if you remember, here's how it ended last week with the religious leaders. Now, this is the bigwigs now, Remember? Jesus is not out in some countryside Galilean synagogue. He's in the temple. The bigwigs are there. They're, they're called the Sanhedrin. It was a group of 71 men who were leaders and author, authoritarian uh, in, in the community led by the high priest. This, this is the big leagues he's in. And this is how it ended. And their chief priests, the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Well, Jesus comes back now to the temple after that first interaction. After he passed the fig tree, remember last week that he had cursed? With his disciples, he comes back on the Tuesday. we probably the Tuesday of the Passion Week now. The last week of Jesus' life, he comes back to the temple. He just disturbed the day before. And you know, they see him coming and they are ready. As soon as he walks in, they are ready. They must be thinking, you know, this is our turf. This is our place. He doesn't have authority here. Who is he? Who does he think he is coming in and and messing up our good thing that we've got going here? Messing up God's house even. And so they asked him in chapter 11, verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? They have been troubled by his authority throughout his entire life. It's it's our point. Jesus' authority has always been challenged. Since he started talking, really, as a young boy, people had been challenged by Jesus' claims and how he did things and his, his authority. Even from the Gospel of Mark, they were troubled by his authoritative teaching, his authority over the spiritual world and the demonic world. His authority to forgive sins. Who can do that but God, right? Remember that? His authority to heal. They have been absolutely challenged by this authority. He does what only God can do. Who is he? And now this authority comes into the temple, our territory. No way. We're not going to let it happen, is their attitude. They want his credentials. Jesus, show us your. Uh, your diploma, your seminary degree. By what authority do you do this? Where are you from? Show us something. By what authority? Who are you? And and really, if we unpack this and we will, they really don't have any interest in coming under his authority, as we see. They only want to trap him, uh, embarrass him, humiliate him, discredit him. Of course... Jesus traps them with a brilliant question. Was John the Baptist's authority from heaven or man? Well, if we say heaven, he's got us because John validated Jesus. And, and if we don't agree with John, then what does that mean? But if we say man, the people loved John the Baptist. They'll, they'll riot if he's got them. He knew they didn't actually want to come under his authority. They're absolutely driven by fear, and it keeps them from acknowledging His authority. The evidence is there, and so they try to give this this rational argument. Well, where's your authority from? But what do we really see? We see fear, and it impacts us too. Here's our. Some application for us. Fear of giving up our own authority, identity, and reputation a lot of times keeps us from submitting to Jesus' authority. In this short little passage from last week into this week, fear is mentioned, I think, three different times. They have a fear of losing control, power, and, and influence and prestige, and position, and reputation. They've got a fear of losing that when this authoritative figure, Jesus, comes along. Verse 32 of chapter 11, they say it as well. What should we say? If we say for man, they were afraid of the people. And then in chapter 12, verse 12, if you look down at your text, they were seeking to rest him, but feared the people. <clears throat> for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So in their fear, what did they do? They left and went away. Fear is all over these passages, all over the place. If Jesus has God's direct authority and his radical teaching is true, will that change my entire view of life? Will that change how I have to respond to people and things and opportunities and, and temptations and trials? And what will that do if he's the ultimate authority? Those kind of thoughts are probably going through our mind, but I think those thoughts come through our mind too from time to time. We live in fear sometimes that maybe, just maybe, Jesus might ask me to give up something. My autonomous individualism, my identity, and whatever that's been built on, uh, what I've placed my worth on, where my reputation is settled and, and, and pushed forward. All of those things. Believe in Jesus? I, I don't think so. Give up what? Submit my will? Follow and maybe even lay down my life? It's understandable that we sometimes respond in fear. We're fallen. And, and, and Jesus does ask a lot of us. But the reality is, we all live according to some authority. All the time, all the time, every one of us in here in this room, whether you call yourself a follower of Christ today or not, and that authoritative voice drives you, directs you, informs you, moves you. And our decisions, our values, our goals, every decision actually is driven by some authoritative voice in your life. For most of us, we at times can be like the religious leaders, and our authority can sometimes reside in ourselves, and we don't want to give that up to anyone else, in, including God. They were afraid. Well, what will happen? Aldous Huxley was one of the most uh, famous philosophers and, 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 and novelists of the 20th century. He wrote the dystopian novel. You he probably heard of it, Brave New World. It's been referenced actually a lot in our current history. I don't think that's a good thing, actually. Uh, but it's popped up a lot, that, that novel again. He gave us one of the most candid confessions of his atheism. Listen to it. He said, I, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. and Consequently, I assumed that it had none. He had motives the philosophy of meaningless, he called it, just saying the world has no meaning, was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of of morality. He and his buddies, we objected to the morality imposed by God because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Talk about candid. Talk about honesty. I appreciate his honesty. I mean, to summarize what he says, he's saying, I don't want to believe in God, his authority, Because if I do, I am afraid he'll contradict my desire to do what I want to do when I want to do it. That's what he's saying. It looks really, sounds really smart and intellectual, and he's probably a brilliant man, but he's really saying, I don't want to have authority. I'm afraid I won't be able to do what I want to do if I give it to God. The fear of losing myself, uh, my will, my self-direction, my my self-salvation, whatever you want to call it, it's fear. The root of that is fear. The real issue for so many of us, whether it's trusting Christ for the first time or as a Christian, a follower of Christ, uh, allowing him to have more authority in our life, a lot of times is fear. Which the religious leaders, they had a logical argument, but where was the real issue? The issue was of the heart. The issue was their heart. It's an eternal problem of the heart where that fear comes from many times for us. If I accept that Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins and rose again and he demands to be Lord of my life, then my life will be turned upside down. And if we think about that, and if we look at our life and examine our life and our desires and our fears, and we look and see something in our life that's, that's more important to you and I than what God might ask you to do with his authority over something. And you find that something, do you know what it's called? It's called an idol. It's called an idol of the heart, not a statue per se that we think old Testament idol and bow down, but something that has captured your heart an idol. Let's look at a few of the most common idols that we struggle with, just to see how they work. I think you can see it there. Just a few of them. Uh, things that 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 uh, confront our fears as well. On the left side, you've got if you seek. So these are things that even in and of themselves are good, but if you seek it, and it becomes an idol. That's that left column. Here's how it impacts you. Let's say your idol is power, success, and it becomes all-encompassing thing for you. Your greatest fear is to be humiliated, to to lose that power. This is what we see with the religious leaders. This is their top one here, this first line. People around you can tend to feel maybe used if power is your idol. And your problem, emotion, is anger. What do we see the religious leaders? We've got power. He's coming in. What are we going to do? Let's kill him. And they're full of anger. It was an idol, their power, their position. Or maybe it's approval for you. Affirmation and and, and even love, a good thing, or relationships have become an ultimate thing for you. Your greatest fear is rejection. People can feel smothered. But because of that idol, your problem emotion is it's cowardice. You have trouble maybe standing up for yourself. Here's another one, comfort. If your idol is comfort, your greatest fear is stress or demands that they might make upon you and, and come into and conflict that comfort you're seeking. People might feel neglected because you're all about your comfort. And boredom is a problem of emotion. Here's here's the last one, control. And these are just a few. If control is what you seek and it becomes an idol for you, your greatest fear, this is a lot of us. I I probably am down here on this one. Uncertainty. Who loves uncertainty? Let's raise a hands. Anybody? This is all of our issue, I guess. Nobody raised their hand. It is a big one. Control. We like to feel we got control of our life. People can feel condemned, and your problem emotion is, is, is worry. Just a simple little chart. These are just a few, but it's just to get us thinking in that way that a lot of good things, even of themselves, can become idols. Religious leaders had a fear of losing power. I will cease to be me if I lose this position, this power, this influence. They had an idol of the heart. The irony is, you will be more of your self, more of who you are truly meant to be, the truer version of yourself when you are are, actually are living under Jesus's authority. That's the irony of the whole thing. You'll be your truer self when living under Jesus's authority. It doesn't feel that way. And so many people react. Against that idea, C.S. Lewis, who died the same day as actually Aldous Huxley, the man we just quoted, same day as JFK too. I don't know, It's just a random fact, but that's when he died. Uh, He had a different view of giving up yourself. Here's what he said. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let Christ take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. In that sense, our real selves are waiting for us in Jesus, in him. It's no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity, he says, and upbringing and surroundings and my own natural desires. What I call my wishes become merely desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested to me by some devils. In other words... To be your own master is to be mastered by yourself, is what he's saying. Give up yourself to Jesus and find your true self as he begins to make you in to what he always meant for you to be. It's It's a paradox. Give up the authority to Jesus. You actually become your truest version of yourself, who you were always meant to be. But don't we resist his authority? I do. The silly fear of losing maybe my self-determination or control maybe for me. Aren't you glad he's patient? Aren't you glad that God is patient? And he's even patient with the religious leaders here. We're going to see. He's even patient with them. It's our second clarifying truth here. I'm so glad for it as we transition to the parable of the tenants. God is extremely patient with those who resist him. I'm glad we get to go here. Because we all have, heart I- all have heart idols, we all struggle with this, and we see such a w- amazing patience in this parable of God. Jesus tells what many call a judgment parable, uh, which is, is severe at the, as at the same time it's gracious. It's gracious at the same time that it has judgment in it. It's attempt to reach their hearts, and ours too this morning. The parables of a vineyard, you probably maybe, maybe you've heard it before, which would have been really clearly understood for God's people to be uh, a picture of Israel. So the vineyard's supposed to be Israel, the people there, the land there, and God is the owner of the vineyard in this parable. And he's waiting for what the vineyard will produce so we can go and collect it, some of the fruit, Uh, from the tenants who are the religious leaders of Israel. So that's the background of this parable. The vineyard is clearly uh, Israel. Their land, there, and the, the tenants are the religious leaders. You might think, well, that doesn't sound fair. They do all the work, and he takes some of the fruit. Well, it would have been a standard arrangement at that time, when you lease land, potentially to, have a, uh, to give some of it to the, the, the owner of the land, the landlord, uh, to have that kind of rental agreement that some of the first fruits would be given to him would have been a standard agreement. But our, our sense of justice, doesn't that kind of say, well, that's not fair. But here's what we know, and here's what the parable shows us. This is God's vineyard. He has a rightful claim on it. The, parable in the, the vineyard in the parable, is, it, it's God's vineyard. He has a rightful claim on it. Did you see there, the owner, what does he do? In his graciousness, in his kindness, he plants the vineyard. He builds the fence for them. He digs the pit for the, the grapes and the wine press. He builds them a tower for protection. He does all of this for them to create this, this, this vineyard. It's actually a story taken right, it's directly from Isaiah 5 1 through 5. God has done it all, is what Jesus is saying. God has done it all. And really, you think of their story, of the Israelites. God had. God had, had delivered them. Delivered the promised land, Canaan, right into, their, into the hands of his people, the vineyard. He'd given it to them. God started in the garden, and Adam and Eve, and they lost it. They lost his land. They lost his vineyard. He called them from Abraham. He begins this project all over again. He multiplies them in Egypt. Remember? He delivers them from slavery. He defeats the nations ahead of them. He builds the vineyard, doesn't he? He builds the vineyard. And now he expected them to be fruitful. It doesn't sound like too much to ask, given all that God had done to deliver them, does it? Once you think about it that way. He took them from not a people to become a people and saved them and gave them a beautiful land of milk and honey. It doesn't sound like too much, maybe. He wanted great things to come from that fruitfulness, from his people to be a spiritual vineyard, a light for the nations. It's understandable. God has set them up with so much, he had high expectations for his people. He really did. Farm well, tend the soil, plant and water so spiritual fruit will come to all the nations, not just you, Israel, all the nations. But we even have more tools to farm than they did. More tools than them. He's called and delivered us too. Think about it. We have God's completed word that they didn't have yet. We have the resurrection, which they didn't know yet. The power of the indwelling spirit in in ways they didn't. We too have no excuse for not farming well or not producing fruit. And us too personally, if we've been a Christian for any length of time. It was a message from last week to encourage to examine our life for fruit. We have so much. He's given us so much, so many tools We also have the local church here. This isn't my church. It's not the elders' church. In fact, it's really, it's technically not your church. It's God's vineyard. It's his. Yet we're responsible for how we tend it, how we care for it, under his authoritative guidance. Even though it was his vineyard, a lot of responsibility rests on the farmer, doesn't it? A lot of responsibility. We have a responsibility here to maintain, to grow spiritually, fruitfully at Bethany Church, as, as he called his tenants to in the parable as well, to maintain that cultivating environment. It's one of the reasons our, uh, our leadership has begun the conversation, just started the conversation to think about what it would be like for us to transition to two services. Nothing's set in stone. Nothing has been decided. And yet if our local little vineyard here fills up, which is a good thing, so much so that we can't cultivate and invite more into the gospel work that God is doing here, we have a responsibility, don't we, to cultivate and care for this corner God has given us. It's one of the other reasons we're thinking of just freshening our place up a little bit. Uh, With a, a remodel, just thinking through how can we do what we can do here to make sure Bethany Church is here for generations producing gospel fruit and can be. That's our goal. Two things are just floating out there, nothing set in stone. You can be in prayer for those things for us as we think about here, our vineyard, our area, and how we are going forward as a church. Those two thoughts where we're praying and thinking about as elders. Well, the owner comes, doesn't he, in the parable. He say he wants to come and, and he expects fruit and uh, he sends these messages and what do they do? Well, it's time and time again, God's people they delivered sour grapes. <laughs> sour grapes. Or here in our story, they give nothing, actually. They give nothing. It's really insanity. We're gonna talk about that in another, in another point. Of it. It's really insane. It's his vineyard. In his grace and kindness and mercy, he's done everything to give it to them. And he comes and they say, no way. We don't want anything to do with you. It really is. But that's what covetousness does to us. We're going to talk about that. Here's our point. Covetousness makes good things into God things and makes us do insane things. Co- this idea to Covet kind of goes along with our idea of fear and idolatry that we've been talking about. To covet something is to desire something too much. To over-desire something. And a lot of times, they're good things, even. But you desire something so much that a good thing becomes almost like a God thing to your heart. A good thing becomes a God thing. Or God to you, even so that everything becomes a means to an end to get it. Whatever that is. I mean, mean, the owner's ready to send his son, his beloved son. They'll they'll respect him. They'll respect him. And what do they do? They assume the owner's dead, and they think, well, let's kill him. We'll get the inheritance. It's insane, isn't it? If you think about it, it really is crazy to think that. "We'll, We'll kill him and get the inheritance. They want the proceeds, they want the fruit, they want the power, they want the prestige, they want to be God, really, in this parable. This vineyard is ours, they say. We're not giving them anything. Here's what David Garland said about covetousness. He said it makes humans want what they should not have. It makes them think that this desire should be fulfilled at all cost. Other persons become things to exploit, and our desires become our gods. That's the danger. Our heart is prone to do that. So the question to ask yourself today is, what do you covet? What good things have you maybe turned into lowercase g, God thing? What would that be for you? What do you feel you deserve so much that maybe you're willing to exploit people to get it? You think, well, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't exploit somebody. Let's go back to our chart. Let's look at it one more time. If you covet power, you want power, people become stepping stones across the pond for recognition. No one's going to pull one over on me. No one's going to pull a fast one on me. Maybe you find yourself a person who mistrusts. If power is something, you covet opportunities to shepherd your children as they disobey to point them gently to their need for Christ turned you into an ogre. <laughs> I've been there. You will obey me, right? That's when powers become uh, too much of a thing for me. Every act of, diso- of uh, a disobedience becomes a, an affront to my power. That's why I respond in anger sometimes to my kids. I covet power too much. How about if you covet Approval or affirmation, you just don't understand. I know Jesus wants me to to, to be with a Christian, to marry a Christian, but you don't understand. I I can't be alone. I just can't. I won't. Or maybe if if it's approval for you, maybe you let people walk all over you. That hurts so much what he said, but it's not worth saying anything, and so you don't confront real sin. Those are all symptoms of turning... uh, affirmation and love into too much of a good thing. How about comfort? Anybody there? Sometimes don't you just want to sit down at the end of the day and not be bothered? <laughs> for us, maybe that's become too, a, a good thing, too much of a good thing. You covered freedom and comfort so much. Don't bother me with that again. I don't have time for that. That's the third time she's called this week. She's so needy. That's what that looks like. Comfort. How about control? Coveting control. We're going to be late. I told you we were ready at five. Now we're going to be late. Everyone's going to see us. Don't you know what's going to happen? We're going to walk in late. Maybe it does sound like us in some places, doesn't it? Maybe that we do fit into some of these things. Every time we sin, actually, we're coveting. We're wanting something, desiring, believing in something, putting something first in our life other than God. And it makes us do insane things, doesn't it? All of us have done some things. We look back and go, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? It's sin. So much so, in the parable of the story, in the messenger to earth, we even killed The beloved son. What's more insane than that? What's crazier than that? We even killed the beloved son. But God is so patient with them, as the story shows. Messenger after messenger after messenger, he sends servant after servant. The owner sends them and they reject them and then they hit one on the head and they finally kill one. And even after killing one, he says, I'll still send my son. That's love. That's patience. That's grace right there. I'll still send my son. I bet they'll respect him. Jesus was referring to the way they treated the prophets. When messenger after messenger, they rebuffed mouthpiece of God after mouthpiece of God came to them. They said, we don't want anything to do with you. Elijah was driven to the wilderness. Isaiah, according to history, was sawn in two. Think about that. Zechariah was stoned to death. John the Baptist was beheaded. Hebrews record a summary for us. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. It's his vineyard. He, he put us here. And they resist, they resist, they resist. We resist, we resist. But instead of his turning his back on the world, God says, I'll send my son. And when he got close enough to be in our clutches and actually took on a physical body so that he could be in our clutches, what did we do? We killed him. But the good news is, That's the turn right there. That's the turn. The killing of the son was actually the saving. So even in our grandest moment of humanity's resistance to God, he saves us. Do you see that? In our grandest moment of the final servant who came, we killed him. Even in that moment, it's when he saves us. The most insane thing we ever did and as humans is the thing that saved us. I love what Spurgeon says about it. If you reject him, that's Jesus, it's God. He answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem you. If you, bear, if you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. That's what this parable's getting at. It's a picture of God's view of salvation, sending the son to the tenants who reject him. But even as the parable makes clear our final point, God's patience at some point turns to punishment. The story turns in verse 9 after they kill the owner's son. We see both his kindness and God's severity in one story his kindness and his severity. To reject his son means, to reject the final beloved son in the story means you lose the land. You know what happened in 70 AD? Rome leveled Jerusalem. They lost the vineyard. It came true. They were sent away. There's monuments in Rome built, I think, by Jews who were sent away there in 70 AD. They rejected the son who becomes the deliverer. Look at 9 through 11. Let's just read them of chapter 12. will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. So here it is before us today. God has sent a lot of messengers. Lots of messengers. Maybe to you, He sent a lot of messengers. Personally, family members, friends, people that are always trying to drag you to church, and maybe you're here today. What will the owner do? Like the parable if you reject this last one, that's it. There's no more. He's spoken. There's there's no more messengers coming. Just like the parable. This was the last one. Heaven, I mean, heaven has no more to say. It's been said in Jesus Christ and the word he's given us. Is that you today? You've rebuffed proof after proof after proof and voice after voice, and today you hear it again. This is the final voice, the beloved son sent to the vineyard. I wish everyone here, and we pray that everyone here will be able to see and to say of that discarded and killed son, that's it, it's Jesus. That's it, it's him. He's the voice, he's the one. In a marvelous turn, the verse even uses the word marvelous, the one who's rejected, the rejected stone becomes the one that the entire building's built on, the cornerstone. Jesus Christ. And it was the Lord's doing. He sent his son. Is it marvelous in your eyes? So here it is. Has the rejected son become the marvelous savior savior in your eyes? He needs to. Well, if he has for you in what area of your life today, the question for you then is, in what area of your life do you need to stop? Stop resisting him. Believe that to give him that authority, it's actually good for you. And like that Lewis quote said, your truer self will will come forward. And if not, hear the warning today. Stop rejecting and start trusting. He's the final voice. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this passage today, one full of both Goodness and kindness, and yet it is severe. At some point, you stop sending messengers. Jesus has come, and yet, and yet we can be his voice today. We have the opportunity to be the voice of the beloved son who was sent. And Lord, we do know that at times people reject him. At times people want nothing to do with him. But, oh, Lord, we know by grace and mercy that an even better vineyard awaits us. An even better homecoming to that beloved son awaits us. So let us move forward here. The vineyard you've given us now can be here in Oregon, here in our corner of the world, to take that message forward. Let us be a voice for the final voice. Lord, someone here today, Continuing to reject and maybe continuing to push off the voices. Let them turn today. Let them see today that the rejected one is actually the answer. Let it become marvelous in all our eyes.
0: In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Jeff.